Fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody. And I'm Vienna. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the far-right podcast Rebel News, and then talk about inducing people to breach their contracts with my friend Vienna. Hell yeah. How are you, Vienna? I'm doing okay, I guess. Nothing, nothing new and exciting, but surviving. How are you? I am also surviving. We've upgraded a bit. I am now recording in a brand new mic. So if you notice a audio difference, that would be why. <laughs> if you notice a sudden smoothness in your voice. Yes. Well, this will be the first time I listen back to it uh, through this mic. So I'll get to experience the smoothness for the first time when I'm editing. <laughs> Wonderful. I also planted some uh, veggies, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I'll keep everyone posted how they go. I, I, I've i never tried using, like, the indoor LED strips. Uh, last year, my tomatoes got too cold, I think, and they started to die because they were too close to a window and it was leaching cold air through the window. So I'm hoping to grow them indoors with uh, some lighting. So we're going to see how that goes. But uh, other than that, my I guess everything's been pretty normal. I will say this is probably going to be a shorter episode. The last two weeks, we had a ton of content shoved all together, and this week, it was kind of like they had nothing to talk about, except two big stories that we'll get to, but uh, they're pretty easy for us to go over. But uh, we'll get to that after the Imperial Roundup. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. This is what happened on The Rebel from March 22nd to March 26th. Ezra discusses the conservative convention that occurred this past Friday. He is overjoyed that the party's base rebuked O'Toole by voting against the idea that climate change is real. It is amazing that this is even an issue, and a little surprising that a conservative leader will agree with this basic fact about reality, while his base is staunchly in denial. Not that agreeing with this basic fact makes O'Toole a hero or anything. His policy ideas are still woefully inadequate when dealing with this problem. But I guess at least he believes it's real. Mark Morano is on to promote his book Green Fraud. The book reiterates many of the points he already makes on The Rebel in his almost weekly appearances. Like that the Green New Deal is a secret communist plot. I wish and that COVID restrictions are practice for governments implementing climate restrictions in the future. This is a Trojan horse of changing our lives to be beholden to bureaucrats on nearly every single aspect of our lives, and they're using the climate scare to achieve their ends, much the way uh, the you know, people have used COVID to achieve their ends in terms of lockdown and regulations and enforcing tyranny. Morano claims that the government will not offer criteria for COVID or the climate crisis ending, and says this is a way for governments to perpetually control us. There is no criteria by which to solve the crisis. And the same is true, you know, with the COVID law, you know, there's no set criteria. So what happens is we don't know, like with the global temperature reaches X, we can end the provisions of the Green New Deal. They don't offer us that because you should want the Green New Deal regardless of anything. It's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm -hmm. And, and if, you don't, if you don't like it, well, you, we have a problem with you. And the same thing, if you don't like a COVID lockdown, 
They can cut your water off. They can cut your utilities if you don't comply. This is a clever tactic because it is true that the climate as an issue or disease prevention as an issue are never going to go away because they are constantly evolving dynamic systems, which means Morano will always be able to fearmonger about government policies which seek to address these ongoing issues. Days after the conservative convention, O'Toole announced he was going ahead with releasing potential conservative party policies regarding climate change, in spite of his party base voting against the idea that anthropogenic climate change is in fact a reality. Ezra frames this as O'Toole accepting a fringe lefty idea. By the way, you'll notice he's not even talking about the environment. I'm interested in the environment. To me, that means clean air, clean water. He's talking about climate change. He's talking about the theory of man-made global warming. That's his central issue. That's what he says there's no debate about anymore. Now, this is a Globe and Mail article. It says he's going to focus on this obscure niche left-wing issue in an election where unemployment is 9.4%. The lockdown has devastated businesses and families. Civil liberties have been smashed. And Aaron O'Toole is obsessed with a fringe lefty issue. Good to know that the science is now firmly on the left of the political spectrum. Lastly, Ezra thinks no one cares about global warming anymore because it is not listed as a top priority in polls. The most important thing, look at the question, thinking about this issue, uh, the issues presently facing Canada, which one do you feel should receive the greatest attention from the government of Canada? What should be the top priority? And that pink line at the top is the, the virus, the pandemic, 32%. I thought it would be higher, because that's all the media talks about, but the blue line is the economy and jobs unemployment. That's at 17%, which is in second, because I think a lot of real people are worried about that. I haven't seen a more recent version of this Privy Council poll, but I'll look for it, because I bet the concern about the economy is actually much higher now, especially since we all see American states opening back up, while we in Canada remain largely locked down. And the red line is health and healthcare, 11%. And you see that green line at the bottom that wavers between 3% and 6% but never gets out of the single digits? That's the environment plus climate change. So anyone who has any concerns about the environment as their number one, smog, dirty water, litter, garbage, whatever, that plus all the global warming worriers adds up to between 3% and 6% of Canadians. I remember this poll has a margin of error of 3%. So it's pretty much as close to zero as can be measured by this poll. It doesn't strike Ezra as weird that pandemics were low on the list before COVID put them on the map. Maybe, and I'm just spitballing here, it is a good idea that politicians care about an issue before it becomes a global catastrophe. Derek Sloan, who is booted from the Conservative Party after receiving donations from a fascist, is on the show to talk about the Conservative Convention. He was happy the party base rejected climate change and claims he helped to mobilize the base on this issue. Um, I had been organizing for several months leading into the convention. We don't know exact numbers, but we think somewhere between 40 to 50 percent of delegates were, uh, you know, Derek Sloan supporters or, or true blue conservatives. And uh, we, we did a pretty good job. Um, we out of I sent out a voter's guide, 25 out of 27 uh, constitutional amendments went the way that I suggested they should. 100 percent of policy went the way I said it should. 
and we got about 50% of national councillors that I endorsed. He still says he is not going to join the PPC, or the People's Party of Canada, but it seems more to do with their lack of popularity rather than an issue of political ideology. So I, uh, I, I've been working with Maxime on the uh, In the Lockdowns Caucus. We've been uh, together personally in the same room uh, three times over the last couple of months. Um, we, there are no sort of secret uh, dialogues going on uh, be- between us and, and joining the PPC. He's, he's given me an open invitation. Um, right now, I'm focused on, uh, you know, kind of first sort of fighting my battle with uh, the Conservatives, but now I'm focused on the parliamentary work that I have. I, I like him. I, I like a lot of the things that he says. Um, you know, and this is me as, a, as, a, as an outsider. It seems that they've had some difficulty gaining traction. Uh, I don't know why necessarily, but uh, but it does appear they've had some difficulty doing that. But listen, I wish him all the best, and I think uh, I think uh, the the things he's doing are, are valuable things. Mm-hmm. Lastly, Sloan is upset that O'Toole didn't mention cancel culture at the convention, suggesting that is a major problem that needs to be addressed. Well, there certainly is a, a major issue with social media censorship, and uh, if if the conservatives, uh, you know, had the uh, fortitude, they would they would campaign on this. Right. I mean, there's a, a mounting frustration with, uh, you know, sort of uh, the politically correct nature of, of these social media platforms and the deplatforming. You know, I, I wouldn't expect much from them on it. I mean, you know, again, I think that Aaron O'Toole did what he thought he needed to win. I, you know, having my second votes, having Leslie Lewis's second votes was was part of his strategy. And so he followed that through. Uh, we're no longer part of his strategy, uh, you know, Cracking down on social media, all of this is not part of his strategy. His strategy is reaching out to, uh, you know, urban area soccer moms. So I wouldn't expect a lot from him on that. But you're right. It's a major problem and um, it needs to be addressed. And it's 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 frightening what we're seeing. Hmm. Lauren Gunter is on to discuss the Supreme Court ruling that a carbon tax is, in fact, constitutional. They don't really address the actual constitutionality or the ruling of the issue. That involved the fact that since climate change is a global problem, federal solutions like imposing taxes on the provinces are actually acceptable under the Canadian Constitution. They try to argue that a carbon tax will not be effective even if you accept climate change as a theory, which is probably true to some extent. But neither Lorne nor Ezra care about the climate. This judicial decision is enough for Ezra and Lorne to speculate about Western separatism. I look look at the glee with which uh, the Liberals are disparaging Alberta and Saskatchewan. I see the environment minister called them recalcitrant, like they're children that need to be disciplined. Maybe the three Supreme Court judges are recalcitrant, true. And I'm thinking, is Alberta ready to go? Not yet. Which is ironic, since if a tax will be so detrimental to Alberta's economy that they have to leave the country... How are they going to succeed on their own as a petrol state while every other country is getting off of oil? Ezra announces that the only person who works for Rebel with a journalism degree is David Menzies, who he compares to Columbo. You know, I think the only person in our whole company who has a journalism degree is David Menzies. But of course, his real talents and skills are not taught in schools. It's street smarts and intuition and a friendly way with people never losing his cool a stubbornness that you don't even really realize is happening 
because it's done with a smile. It's a clever approach. Reminds me a bit of Columbo. Ezra, who is currently hiring, says he will need to double check a person who puts on a resume that they went to a journalism school to make sure they aren't brainwashed. My point is, David's our only J school grad, and his strengths as a journalist didn't come from there. And even then, it was a quarter century ago. Oh boy, are journalism schools different today. You know, we're hiring here at Rebel News, looking for a few journalists. And I wouldn't discriminate against someone who went to journalism school, but if they had a journalism degree, I'd sure check them out to make sure they weren't just brainwashed from it, because that's what it's like these days. He claims that journalism schools are cooking up mental illness and uses Ryerson University as an example. And let me now take you for a walk through Ryerson's journalism school, which is truly like taking a walk through an insane asylum 100 years ago before those things were shut down. It's sheer madness. I think my insane asylum analogy is strong. It feels like they're cooking up mental illness in these places. Recently, two chairs at Ryerson's School of Journalism stepped down after calls from marginalized communities that they felt unsafe in the program. Most reporting on this has ignored the concerns of the students that came forward, making it easy for people like Ezra to pass off these concerns as students being snowflakes. In reality, the student letter makes it clear that Ryerson's School of Journalism has a history of ignoring concerns from marginalized communities about how they handled course material regarding race, religion, and sexuality. A Muslim student was singled out to make a statement during a class on the topic of terrorism. A class on critical issues had the students debate racism. Ezra suggests the only thing students should ever be concerned about regarding safety would be asbestos in the walls. A call to action was made through an open letter by Ryerson Journalism students addressing concerns that the school has contributed to an unsafe learning environment. Unsafe, they, they don't mean like an open manhole cover or asbestos or no fire alarms. They mean unsafe words and feelings. But maybe debates about racism, singling Muslim students to address terrorism, and ignoring student sexual assaults should also count as harms that should be taken seriously. And that is the week. For those who don't know, although I imagine everyone who's listening right now knows, Rebel has been demonetized off of YouTube. Now, for those who watch the streams, you would already know this. We, we covered it on the stream. We watched this video. But not everyone who listens to the podcast listens to the stream. So we're going to go over some ground that we went over on the stream. They got demonetized and... They claim that they don't know why they got demonetized. So basically, YouTube sent them this letter that said, uh, we're, we're demonetizing you, which means you're no longer going to be able to get super chats and you're no longer going to get advertising revenue on your channel. And Ezra claims that this counts for $400,000 worth of their yearly budget is what they get off of YouTube super chats and advertisements. And the reason what they, like the reason they cited was that as the Rebels channel engages in harmful, basically harmful acts. There's harmful footage. We've covered, I mean, many of you have listened to this podcast. I think it was just last week or two weeks ago. We had Ezra talking about how his buddy, Larry Solomon, who works on the board of advisors for Rebel News, wrote a piece in the Epoch Times that was a vaccine denial piece. 
And part of that episode, the video that is usually behind a paywall, he put that video up on YouTube. So you can go to YouTube right now, and you can watch that video, and listen to Ezra talk about Larry's article. And even in that video, Ezra himself says things that are not just opinions. He states that, like, maybe if nurses are not getting vaccinated, that should tell you something, shouldn't it? So what does it say about a pandemic when you can't even give away the vaccine? Even to people who are the most educated about healthcare, I think, and who would theoretically be at the highest risk of getting infected, I think, it suggests to me that they simply don't believe the hype. And they're as close to health experts as anyone is. And in fact, if you're a nurse or a doctor who actually deals with actual COVID cases every day, you probably know more about the reality of the virus than some bureaucrat or politician which is what a public health officer like Teresa Tam is. Which is basically suggesting to the audience that you shouldn't go get your vaccine. And that is exactly in the harmful category that YouTube cited to them in their email. That is exactly listed there. <laughs> yeah, no, like it was just, he was reading out things and he would skip over the ones that did apply as well. Like he would just read out the things that could like be at least questioned where it was like, oh, you know, we would never show videos of, like, skateboard accidents. And, like, right next to it would be like, oh, you know, false and misleading claims about the origins of COVID-19. Yeah. And he would just, like, not mention that part at all. What was even funny was, like, his exaggerated... Because he's like, we've never shown, like, uh, unwanted kissing or touching. And we've never shown, like, skyscraper parkour videos. And so they're, like... They point to those going, see, based on YouTube standards, we're not harmful. Let me take one more minute on their email to me last night. There was a cryptic reference in there. Do you see that one phrase, harmful or dangerous acts? That's a list of things you can't do on YouTube. Uh, I read through the whole thing very carefully. It's mainly a rule against crazy and dangerous things that we've just never done. Uh, here's an example. Acts involving high-risk activities, such as skyscraper parkour, or depicting serious injury like skate slam aftermath. That's an example. Or pranks relating to suicide, death, terrorism, such as fake bomb scare pranks, or threats with lethal weapons, sexually unwanted acts such as forced kissing, groping, sexual abuse, spy cams in dress rooms. These are actual YouTube examples of what they mean by harmful or dangerous acts. Have you ever seen anything like that on Rebel News? But again, included on that list is spreading misinformation about COVID. Now, I think what he wants to do is the way he frames that is to set up that the parkour and the unwanted kissing are obvious bad things. So therefore, like, obviously those are bad, but like some COVID denial isn't that bad, is it? But like, regardless of whether that comparison is apt about one being worse than the other, I would argue like maybe, I don't know, I think the spreading of a global pandemic that has killed almost 3 million people is a lot worse than the few people who've died from skyscraper parkour. But <laughs> that being aside, like... It still, it still is a part of YouTube's terms of service. And so if you're violating the terms of service in order to get monetization, 
then you're violating those terms of service. I think there's always like a difficulty here because as leftists, I know I personally don't love the fact that we're at the whims somewhat to YouTube's monetization system. But Ezra, who's like a full-fledged capitalist, shouldn't have a problem with this, which is that a company has made a decision based on their own like profit margin. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about like the, oh no, but we must have free speech when it's like, no, free speech pretty explicitly protects you from the government. It does not protect you from private corporations. And those are the private corporations that you love. So what now, bud? Yeah. <laughs> and that's going to be super relevant to uh, when we get to the next story too, which is this whole like needing to cancel cancel culture. But it's like a problem when it's silencing your free speech, but you, but really Ezra wants it to silence other people's free speech is what his problem here is. He, he probably would not shed a tear if YouTube was demonetizing uh, accounts that were promoting Palestinian rights. That would be something that Ezra would just completely ignore. But because it's happening to him, because he's spreading COVID uh, misinformation, he has a problem with it. And now it's an issue of cancel culture and censorship. How dare they? One thing that Rebel is trying to do with this is to move to another platform. So they have chosen currently to move to the platform Rumble. I don't know very much about Rumble yet. I know... Well, Ezra himself claims in the show that it's used by the likes of Dan Bongino and Donald Trump Jr. So, you know, he's in good company now on Rumble. We'll be working on our plan B for when the cancel mob comes for us. We're, we've already set up Rebel News channels on smaller rivals to YouTube, like the video website BitChute and Rumble.com. That's a Canadian-based company that has a free speech orientation Dan Bongino and even Donald Trump Jr. use Rumble.com for their videos. The other thing that he's trying to do is because if you look at his YouTube subscriber base, it says he has uh, 1.4 million subscribers, but I don't think that represents the base that's watching his footage right now. So each video that he puts up rarely, rarely, if ever, reaches the 100,000 views point. Most of his videos hover around the 10 to 20,000 range. The video announcing that he got demonetized, that had 60,000. His, his uh, uncovering the Chinese plot of the Chinese soldiers were training the uh, Canadian, or no, the Canadian military was training Chinese military in the Secrets of Winter Warfare video that he went on Tucker Carlson and all this. That only got 200,000 views. That's it. The story he called his biggest story of his entire career. It got 200,000 views on YouTube. Ha uh ha. -huh. <laughs> so I don't think the 1.4 represents his entire audience. In fact, I think a lot of that number, I wonder how much of it is some sort of weird bot thing that could possibly be going on that's uh, trying to drive engagement to his channel. The other thing might be that a lot of these people that joined back in 2015, 2016, were there for people like Gavin McGinnis, Faith Goldie, Lauren Southern, who were the biggest draws. Like, if you go back to a Gavin McGinnis video, like, sadly, it was getting, like, a million views. God. All those videos are now gone. Well, no, well the videos aren't gone, but the people are, are gone. And so those people, since they're not making content, you now have who? Kian? 
Sheila Gunn-Reed is I have nothing good to say about Gavin McGinnis. The guy's a piece of shit. But does he have more charisma than Kian Bexty? 100%. Which in a way makes him more dangerous, but that's that's <laughs> that's a different story, right? But the point is, it's like they don't have the same draw that they used to. So what Ezra is trying to do is he he wants to create some sort of like email uh thing to collect emails to divert them to their new Rumble account. Or in case it gets to the point where YouTube completely shuts down their whole channel, which I think they should, he wants all these emails so that he can be like, we're over here and send everyone an email. Email as like a medium for engagement is just not going to like work out well ever. Like I am on so many different email lists and I get one of those emails and I turn off notifications for it immediately. Like I don't want to see them. And I don't click on them ever. This is why I think he's collecting the emails, because I think you're right. I think he's collecting those emails because there's a certain segment of his audience that he gets in to, to sign the petitions, to list their emails. And then he creates these email farms and constantly solicits them for donations. And some of them end up giving him donations. So the only reason is like he's using, again, it's like it's every single time there's a new issue they create a new website. We talked about this last week, right? The creations of the, these fake websites. They'll create a new website. So now they have like, we've been demonetized.com or whatever the hell it's called. You go there, you enter your email such that they're going to tell you whenever they get kicked off YouTube. But now they have your email in their files. And so they're going to solicit you for donations all the time. So this is basically, it's another, it's another uh, scam. And well, it's not even a scam. It's another like trick to get your email such that they can solicit to uh, funds from you in the future. And that's it. I kind of hope they're at least like selling those emails to like advertising companies or whatever too. Just like, because whoever signs up for those emails just deserves a bunch of spam. Yeah. <laughs> Sad, like, I, man, that made me think that maybe they, like, sell it to the conservative party and stuff like that, too, which would be super gross. I mean, I doubt they are anymore. Maybe they used to, and now they're getting even less funding because of that. Yeah. I mean, like, part of me goes, it, it could be something that, like, if they were, if they were stealthy about it and did it because they were ideologically driven and not, like, monetarily driven, I can see a reason for, for wanting to do it. But then part of me thinks that Ezra has too much of an ego to do it, you know? Yeah. Although I wonder about, like, the Canada Proud and, like, Ontario Proud and those sorts of groups. I wonder if maybe some manner of connection there. Because they just seem to get phone numbers and emails and just, like, anything somehow. And I don't know quite how they've managed that. Yeah, probably have to do with the Facebook stuff. But... The interesting thing there is the Canadian proud people are working with O'Toole. Mm -hmm. And Ezra hates O'Toole, as our whole Imperial Roundup segment was proof of. Ezra just hates O'Toole. He spent all week this week telling us how much he hates O'Toole. <laughs> it's so crazy, that whole thing. Was it on the Conservative Party, their header? Oh, they got rid of the old. Although they did kind of make it worse. Um... Was it the secure the future thing? Yeah, they made that new... Their header is now secure the future, Canada's recovery plan. And it's not a picture of O'Toole anymore. It's just that in French and English. But it's still like very 14 words adjacent. 
Yeah, and I don't know if that's so much. I, I almost feel like I don't think that O'Toole would be someone who's down with that language, but that tells me that there's probably someone in his communication team mm-hmm. that's like in on that, and that's that's definitely uh, not great. But this gets to my like my broader point that I wanted to say because Ezra speculates on why they were demonetized now as opposed to whenever because he is right. They've been doing COVID denial since the beginning of the fucking pandemic. They've had like all the time we show on the stream. They have a video that plays before every single one of their YouTube videos, which like has like this warning sign that goes warning censorship, warning censorship, and it says that. Uh, in this video, we contradict the medical opinion and it's just our opinion and stuff like this. And they thought that was sufficient not to get demonetized, <laughs> but it basically admits that they're spreading misinformation, which is exactly against what what YouTube's guidelines are. But again, they've been doing it since the beginning of the pandemic. So why now? And Ezra speculates it's because what we covered last week, which was that the military is spying on him, which, as we showed... <laughs> It's not true. (laughs) God. But I think if you consider all the shit that's been happening lately, including the fact that Proud Boys have been recently designated as a terrorist organization, and that Gavin McGinnis, creator of the Proud Boys, got his start on Ezra's show, at least became uh, more known through uh, being on The Rebel. And Gavin McGinnis admits this himself. It certainly puts them in a bit of a spotlight, doesn't it? It's very, like, telling that they're capable of creating Gavin McGinnis, basically, and then also, like, going on to hire Kian, who had that, like, Rhodesian military bullshit, and, like, just openly defending, like, pretty much anybody. And, you know, Faith Goldie going to Charlottesville and also getting third in the race for mayor of Toronto, which I don't think gets talked about enough and how terrifying that is. Kian going to Washington for January 6th? At the end of the day, Rebel News is kind of the center of a lot of the, like, fascist groupings in North America. And that's terrifying. Yeah. that's It's likely a combination of all this stuff. But honestly, YouTube should have done it a long time ago. And uh, I would also say that YouTube should just kick them off their channel, if I'm being completely honest. Even though that will make it more difficult for me, or I will have to go to Reb- Rumble. Rumble? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't care. If, if in the end we have to completely choose a new subject because Ezra has been completely wiped off the internet, I'm cool with that. See, I hope he gets kicked off of YouTube, and then I hope the wrestling community takes rumble and claims it as their own and just kicks off everybody else because rumble.com or whatever that is such a good wrestling social media site (laughs) name and that is what it should be so we had one win the demonetization of rebel now our next story is just a bit less less of a victory for us and more a kind a quasi win for rebel so back in 2019, when Ezra wrote his book, The Libranos, he booked two, like two theaters that were owned by the same guy in Edmonton, where he was going to do like a book signing and a talk of some kind. What happened was, obviously, because everyone hates Ezra, there was lots of people uh, protesting and writing the theater and sending tweets being like, don't platform Ezra. 
don't let him speak at your theater, all this kind of fun stuff. And on the last day, I think it was, when the the event was supposed to happen, at least I'm pretty sure that's how the timeline worked, or it was like a few days before he said he was going to cancel the event, and Ezra showed up anyways, and the doors were locked, and anyways, it was a big thing, and so Ezra sued this person. And he sued this person for breach of contract, which it's quite possible that this guy did breach a contract because Ezra had apparently paid money and had signed a contract already. And there must be nothing in the contract, I guess, that stipulated that if there's sufficient public pressure, he could cancel out of it or something, right? So because he got canceled, Ezra sued the owner and ended up settling. Now, we don't know to what extent there was a monetary settlement that is... As Ezra put it, it's confidential. That was part of the uh, part of the agreement to the settlement. But he also got an apology from the guy, a written sort of apology, saying that he was sorry, that he caved to the mob, and he even he even cites two staff members who apparently pressured him as well to cancel the event. I, Mackenbrar of Edmonton, Alberta, am the owner and operator of Historic Princess Theaters Inc. Rebel News Network Limited had scheduled two book launch events for October 10th, 2019 at the Princess Theatre in Edmonton and October 15, 2019 at the Plaza Theatre in Calgary. I made the decision to cancel those events at the last minute due to pressure from my staff and because of the specter of large community protests. In particular, two employees, Michael Corliss and Jordan Thompson, told me that Rebel News was not welcome on White Avenue in Edmonton and that they had faced problems at other events. In fact, Rebel News had held events at my theaters in the past without incident, and I should not have canceled these events. Doing so caused financial damage to Rebel News and damage to Rebel News' reputation. I apologize to Rebel News and its owner, Ezra Levant, for canceling the events and for any damage suffered, Mike Brar, Mike, apology accepted. Now, even back when we were initially talking about this, almost a year ago on the show, even then he said he's not only going to sue the owner, he said he was going to sue the protesters for inducement of breach of contract. And what that means is that he claims, so there's a, a tort that's called inducement of breach of contract, and Ezra said that the protesters were engaging in inducement, so they somehow put pressure on this guy to breach his contract. I don't know for a fact that he's doing it now, other than the fact that he says that he's doing it, but he said it like a year and a half ago, but I guess it still hasn't gone anywhere, or I don't know what's happened, but he wants to talk about it again, so he's going to bring it up. He got this apology, he won one of his battles, and he kind of wanted to like pitch, like, the next battle is that we're going to go sue all these activists. We're going to cancel the cancel culture mob by suing them for inducement of breach of contract. See, it's sort of an obvious move to sue for breach of contract when someone breaches their contract with you. So that's Mike Brar in the Princess Theatres. But even though he was the one who actually canceled the event, it was the mob who forced him to do it, who abused him, who threatened him, who pressured him, who scared him. Metaphorically, they had a gun to his head, and nothing I could say or do could make him feel safe, even the private security I hired. They did this to him. 
And this is the new legal strategy that we used. And I don't know if it's been used anywhere before to fight cancel culture. We sued individual members of the Twitter mob and the email mob and the Facebook mob and everyone else who threatened Mike Brar where we could find their real name. We, we sued them for inducing a breach of contract. That's just so fucked up. Especially, like, if this works, like, that is an absolute nightmare for, like, freedom to protest and that sort of thing. It's partly why I don't think it's going to work. But I, would th I thought I would go through some of the history here of this tort law and see what you think to what extent it could apply to people who are protesting an event. Ezra himself, in the video that he lists, or the, that he puts out showing that he's going to do this, goes all the way back to the 1800s in a case with this opera singer who was, I think, the daughter of uh, Wagner. For those who are into music will know who Wagner is. And so she was an opera singer, and one venue had a contract with her to sing at their venue. And this other venue was like, we want her to sing at our venue, and basically persuaded her to break her contract with the other, breach her contract with the other venue, and sing with them. And so the other theater then sued the theater company for inducement of breach of contract. Now, back in England, in their common law practice, the idea was that contracts were like sacrosanct. And so you don't want people just willy-nilly breaking contracts like that. And so inducement was a way of like portioning off even stricter rules about trying to get people to break their contracts. Now, there wasn't a lot of like case history with this. It wasn't used very often. And the only times throughout history, or at least the times where it was mostly used, were usually in labor rights cases. So, for example, some of the earlier cases in Canada involved a union that was telling their workers to go on strike. And so the companies would sue the labor union going, you induced our workers to break their contract. I was kind of wondering about that sort of thing and how that could apply to protests. Because like, you know, say a protest is blocking a road or highway or like train track or something, and that impedes people getting to work, which would hypothetically be a breach of their contracts like that like if something like this were to go through nowadays with like rebels thing that could pretty easily be applied to protesters i think and like you can see a lot of like the criminalization of protests in the u.s especially and thankfully i know we don't have as much of a politicized judiciary but still concerning prospect we'll get to it in a second but there's a reason why your example won't necessarily work although there's a kind of a part of it, or I think there's an avenue that some people are trying to go down that is also worrying. But your example, I think, is just a little a little too far off the, the path to actually be effective. And I'll explain why in a second. Mm -hmm. But in these labor rights cases, I mean, what eventually happened was once we, we got labor rights in Canada, <laughs> that, that relationship basically meant that like that whole notion of breach of contract just kind of goes away there because you have a right to, to strike. Right? We didn't used to, and there was like these issues of breach of contract and whatnot. Now, getting sort of back to your point, this got sort of clarified in a case involving the Toronto Stock Exchange, which I think his name was Gale, Judge Gale, sort of like listed out clearly what is inducement. And the reason why he wanted to list out clearly what is inducement is because there's another uh, tort 
that is very similar to inducement, which is interfering with a contract. And we don't necessarily have to get into interference, but the best way to describe interference would be, say, for example, you're a pipeline company and you're laying down pipes. And so you have a contract to to lay down this pipe. Mm -hmm. So they have a contract to lay some pipe. And... (laughs) And you, you want to pipe block them, right? And so you go in there and you pipe block them. Usually, if you're going to do an action like that, you're doing something that is on, on the like cusp of being illegal. And that's important to the interference clause because it's wrongful interference uh, because it's not legal. Mm-hmm. And because they have a contract, you're now interfering with their contract and therefore you can be sued for that. Yeah. So that's like not far off from what I was hypothetically saying. Right. But I mean, that's only if you're doing something illegal. There's obviously there's going to be a line there, right? So it's like, if we're setting bombs and blowing up pipelines, then there's probably a tort there. Now we're talking. If we're simply like picketing a roadway and making it more difficult for them to to do it, there might not be a tort there, right? Like we're getting into the gray area because nothing in the law is like perfect, right? Obviously, don't take legal advice from this podcast either. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, is like, there's some like degree to which like you could cross that line eventually. And it becomes now uh, wrongful interference. So, so Gail's sort of like ruling that clarified what inducement is, comes with basically five parts. And that is, there needs to be the existence of an enforceable contract. There needs to be knowledge on the part of the defendant of the existence of the plaintiff's contract. So this sort of goes against the other thing that you were saying, because it's like, if you're just blocking a roadway and you're interfering with someone getting to their job, you don't actually know that the other person has a contract. So it's not inducement. I guess it would depend on like the lawyers and the judges being like sympathetic, I think, because like arguably like you know you know blocking a road or something is going to interfere with people getting to places that they need to go for whatever reason so like it could be if they were to interpret it very uncharitably i think it could be pretty easily applied to say like yeah like you know they knowingly block people who they know were probably getting to their jobs they might not have known the specificity of the contracts from what I understand of the law, it has to be knowledge of this specific contract. Okay. So for in the case of Wagner, right, clearly the other venue, through conversations with Wagner, knew she had another contract. Yeah. And therefore still induced her to break it. If you just tell, so say, for example, if I tell you uh, to quit your job, but I don't know that your job relied on some sort of contract, I didn't then induce you to breach your contract because I don't even knew, I didn't even know there was a contract there, right? So part of the law here involves intent or, or knowledge and then intent, right? So the next thing is, even though I know you have the contract, I intended you to breach it. Mm-hmm. Then the next part is that, I actually interfered. I induced you. <laughs> I actually induced you to do it and you broke it. And then therefore it results in damage. Now, the issue that I have is like, I'm not sure that this will work for the kind of things that Ezra wants it to work for. And, and here's, here's my case. And maybe like, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm going to take a guess at it. And I'm curious if it does, if he does succeed at filing this lawsuit and it goes to court, whether or not the uh, defendant's are going to use this kind of strategy. But for me, I'm thinking when you when you tell 
so for example, the theater, I don't think you should platform Ezra. Are you telling him to breach a contract? Hmm. I guess the question is like, because it's already been announced, it's on some level presumed that there has been a contract made. If they're already saying like, this person is appearing at this theater. So again, like, and you know, I'm interpreting this in a like in like harshest light possible is kind of like you might not you know know the conditions of the contract but you do know that some sort of thing has been signed that that theater is then like working with whoever is appearing at that theater so this is where i agree with you i think there would be knowledge on part of the defendant of the existence of the plaintiff's contract that's there's some kind of contractual relationship going on here but my issue is with the intention, because if I tell the theater to not platform Ezra, I'm not telling them that they need to breach the contract with Ezra, because there's many things the theater could do to get out of the contract rather than just breach it. Yeah, I suppose. He could work out a deal with Ezra to get out of the contract. He could uh, pay Ezra not to come speak. He could do so many things not to have Ezra speak that don't involve breaching the contract. And if all I'm saying is that I don't think Ezra should be speaking at your venue, I don't have the intention for you to break any contract that you have. Yeah. And if you're not specifically like supplying the theater with somebody else to speak at that same time that Ezra was supposed to have been speaking. That's the other thing, because I'm like, most of these cases involve some sort of like commercial relationship that is not involved here which i almost feel like this tort once it gets into the room at, or the realm of uh the freedom of expression that's also going to be a difficulty so one thing i didn't say is the thing the ruling in which gail clarified this came with the toronto stock exchange and they basically induced another company on the thing to get rid of a contract they had with another company i don't know all the details it was old-timey and complicated. But either way, they did this, and so it went to court, and Judge Gale ruled that it actually was not inducement, or, or that it was inducement, but it was justifiable, and therefore it wasn't a tort. And the reason was that Toronto Stock Exchange induced the breach of this contract for, like, the greater good, like a public good, because this company was doing something wrong. And so it seems to me like there's there's a case history here where companies could induce others to breach a contract, but it wasn't for personal monetary gain. It was for the greater public good. And that applies exactly to this Ezra case, where it's like, I don't have a monetary thing to gain from deplatforming Ezra, but I think it's in the public interest not to have him speak at this venue. So therefore, I'm inducing the breach of contract, which is a separate defense than the one that I already said. But I think both of these defenses kind of work. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what province is it in again? It'll be in Alberta. Alberta. Huh. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, part of this is like, uh, like, I don't know. The thing that worried me, the only thing that worried me is the only stuff that I could find on inducement of breach of contract in the modern day, mostly, uh, or not mostly, but like what kept coming up was pipeline companies arguing that they should be using this against uh, environmental protesters. Yeah. And it was coming from Alberta. Yeah. Now, I don't know to what extent the, uh, the legal system in Alberta is like completely beholden or separate or whatnot. I haven't been keeping up with that. But it does worry me 
or I wouldn't even say that it worries me, but it is an interesting thing to note that Ezra, who we know is at least friendly with the oil lobby in Alberta, and like as as our Imperial Roundup segment showed, all he cared about was global warming this week and how bullshit it is because he loves oil and gas. It's eerie that the oil and gas companies and Ezra on his show are the only ones trying to adopt this legal strategy against protesters. Good news that's going on this week. Labor Against the Arms Trade, uh, as well as some other anti-war activists in Canada, on the 26th uh, blocked off a railway leaving the uh, General Dynamic Land Systems factory, uh, which constructs the LAVs that Canada has a $14 billion contract to sell to Saudi to continue their war in Yemen. Activists blocked off the railway system that delivers, uh, that goes from London to Hamilton to um, basically just like send these LAVs to the Great Lakes and then ship them to Saudi. Some activists blocked off the railway there, and that has been continuing off and on kind of in London and Hamilton. In uh, They used to be brought then by train all the way to Halifax, I think. Or maybe it was by boat to Halifax, and then they stopped and changed and continued. But basically anywhere in Canada that has contact with these LAVs funding, being sold to Saudi to continue the war in Yemen, there have been people protesting, and another action regarding that happened earlier this week, which is very exciting as something that you can do to get involved. Um, I would try to find your local anti-war organizations. Um, some good ones are uh, Beyond, World Beyond War Canada, Labor Against the Arms Trade, and uh, People for Peace. You can kind of look them up on Twitter plus your local city or whatever and should be able to find them. Although I believe World Beyond War is just World Beyond War Canada, uh, and Labor Against the Arms Trade is obviously tied to the local like labor organizations, so you might be able to find them by reaching out to your local labor council. I will say, as someone who used to be an executive on the Labor Council, that was always a touchy issue. And the reason is, is because those workers at that plant are unionized. You might not be able to find <laughs> information about labor against the arm trade from your local uh, Labor Council. But I will say that the, uh, I mean, like I knew about this organization uh, beforehand, and I'm glad that they put on this action. I was almost sad that like I didn't hear about it, but I guess they didn't want anyone to hear about it because they knew that the police would immediately stop them, which... The police immediately stopped them anyways. But at least it got them publicity. Like I saw it going around. It got shared uh, pretty wide. And so even though it was just a small number of them and it was pretty much immediately disrupted, it, at least it made a uh, some kind of dent in the, I don't know, I guess the Twitterverse, <laughs> if that matters. At least like some eyeballs like caught attention to it. So at least uh, brought a... A clear picture that these things are being developed in our city and being sent elsewhere to kill people. So, this is the first action of theirs that I've seen in London, but they regularly do actions in Hamilton, especially um, because Hamilton is just, you know, infinitely more radical and organized in my experience. It's a union city. Yeah, exactly. But 
they had a similar action happen in January and blocked off the railways there uh, because the railway goes from London to Hamilton and then they are loaded onto uh, trucks and sent, I think, down to Cleveland these days where they're loaded onto boats and shipped east, which is like a whole weird little organizing way because I'm pretty sure Hamilton has a port and Toronto has a port too, but they don't do it there. It's just very nice to see something happening so locally because they are produced here and it is intimately tied to, as you said, the Labor Council. It's tied to um, the engineering department at the University of Western Ontario that's in London. Is almost entirely based around like internships with General Dynamics, which, so far as I know, pretty much only makes weapons of war. So it's kind of terrifying to, that like university engineering students are automatically being indoctrinated and like built into this system that it only profits through violence when like we could be making buses or something there i'm sure like we could be making something that is actually like beneficial to not just us locally but you know everybody anywhere like world's always going to need some sort of public transportation why are we why aren't we doing that instead of these things that are built to kill people which which leads to the next story which is that my my local riding they just nominated their NDP candidate which was the NDP candidate that run uh, ran last time and uh, got the biggest vote that NDP has ever gotten in our riding for the federal election it hasn't been called yet that they're going to have an election anytime soon but when it does Dirka Prout is going to be the next candidate She's also, I guess, full disclosure, a patron of this podcast, so that's pretty dope. <laughs> but uh, Dirk is awesome. She's also in the Socialist Caucus of the NDP. I love her to bits. I wish her all the best, and I'm going to be pushing to get her uh, elected as best as I can because our liberal candidate, who's our current MP, sucks a lot. Like, in the spectrum of liberal politics, he's closer to the right of the Liberal Party. He's a very pro-corporatist and cares more about bringing in profits for the university than he does about anything else having to do with this city. And so I would like him to go away for good (laughs) and have our new MP, Dirk Prout, do things like nationalizing certain industries to retool them for a green economy would be really nice. It's not socialism, but it's a step in the right direction. And so uh, I, I wish her all the best and congratulations on her nomination in this writing. Congrats, Durka. Please nationalize the telecom companies. Please, please, please. <laughs> if you don't want us to become NDP shills <laughs> and you enjoy what you've heard so far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. If you want to stay informed about what we're doing, you can also find us on Twitter at Imperial News of the Z. We have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up and we'll be doing Twitch streams every Wednesday and Friday at 8 p.m. I have a new computer, so I'm, I'm doing some gaming streaming. I might do some general politics stuff. Uh, part of the issue is, is finding time to do stuff with the kids uh, also being around. But I might stream a bit more just random stuff uh, until I get something settled and figured out. But definitely Wednesdays and Fridays are still going to be more political and Fridays uh, streams are going to be more rebel related. So go check those out. You can find all the links to the streams and whatnot, our social media 
stuff. You can find that in the show notes. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com. Special thanks to my friend Mason Tickle for the transition beats. You can find his work at striatum.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. And Ryerson's University School of Journalism, you canceled. Albumbia, Albumbia, how lovely are your wheat fields.